Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I'm so glad you are here today. Thank you for joining me. So as you know, my book, The Ownership Mindset, is coming out in October of this year. And I wanted to do more interviews with leaders of employee-owned companies and to help people understand the power of employee ownership, why I'm so incredibly passionate about it, not only from it being a business model, but really a competitive advantage because of the culture you can build around it and the financial and tax benefits that you can get from it. So I thought there would be no one better to bring on the show than the co-founder of the National Center for Employee Ownership, which is a private nonprofit membership organization, otherwise known as the NCEO. I'm sure you've heard of me talk about it in other podcasts before. But Corey Rosen started this back in the 80s when he realized that there was so much power in employee ownership. He was a political scientist and he was working in the U.S. Senate and he said, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. This employee ownership stuff is really interesting. I think I want to look at it. And so he started the NCEO, which is the premier source for information on anything and everything employee owned. And he is amazing. He's been doing this for 45 years and he is the expert on employee ownership models and can point you in the exact direction you need to go if you're considering employee ownership, but also talk about the benefits from a leadership perspective and what it really means to run an employee-owned company. He has a new book out that he talks about, which I'll include in the show notes as well. And it's just a great interview. He explains employee ownership in such simple terms. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. It does give you some background into what we at Stone Age had to do to become an employee-owned company. And it is really cool. So hang tight. I'll be right back with Corey. All right, everyone. I am back with Corey Rosen. Corey, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thanks, Carrie. It's an honor to be talking with you. Well, I love everything that you are about and that the organization stands for. But I want to know, why did you found this amazing organization? I think it was back in 1981 or something like right. that that you founded right. it. So, yeah, give us the backstory here. So I started off life as a political scientist. Yeah. Did that for a couple of years and decided it was watching a game I wanted to play. And so I got a fellowship to work on Capitol Hill. That was 1975. Two years later, I was bored and I was reading the congressional record. You have to be really bored to do that. <laughs> there was this testimony from a famous professor who I knew about. And so I read that and it was about employee ownership, which I didn't know anything about. Not many people knew anything about. And I was absolutely taken by that idea because here was something that would seem be really good for employees and would be good for companies too. It was kind of a win-win. So I thought, well, I should learn more about this. And I got more and more involved, learned about what ESOPs were. I was able, fortunately, to get involved in some of the legislation around ESOPs, was able to draft three bills that ended up becoming law. And realized that we had a lot of tax benefits for ESOPs at that time, but very few people knew what this was. And we didn't know really whether employee ownership even worked. Was it good for companies? Was it good for employees? 
And if it did work, why would it work better in some circumstances than others? What made it sing? So I thought, well, I'll just go naively, start an organization to do that research and spread the word. Now, I really had no idea how to do it, but I was determined. And so I went down to my basement and said, this is the National Center for Employee Ownership. And we're now 43 years later, we're a staff of soon to be 19. And we have about 2,700 members. What a great story. I love that. I love it that you wanted to play. I haven't heard it that way, but it makes total sense. So tell us a little bit from your own words, what the NCEO does, like what value do you bring to your members and how are you really promoting employee ownership on a national level? So we're really the principal source of research and information about employee ownership from the standpoint of policymakers or the press or the general public. We're the people where you get information about how many ESOPs are there and how effective are they? And other forms of employee ownership too, not just ESOPs. That's not the only tool there is. So we have done the really groundbreaking research on do ESOPs work? And we can talk about what we found later, what makes them work better or worse. And in addition to that research, we do a lot of outreach. We publish over 50 titles on ESOPs. So pretty much anything that you want to know, you can find out from us. We have lots of documents and webinars, and we do conferences and workshops around the country. So if you're thinking about an ESOP or other forms of employee ownership, we're a really good place to start. We're not a consulting firm. We're not going to sell you on a plan, but we can give you the information that you need to make good decisions. And if you are an ESOP, we can provide you with lots of tools to make your ESOP better. And I think this is a question, this is a question that I get asked all the time, and you are the expert since you've done so much research and talked to so many companies about it. Why is employee ownership so important? And maybe talk about it from both a business perspective and from a social and political aspect. My colleague and I, John Case, wrote a book that came out in September called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What. And the basic argument of the book is that the ownership system in the U.S. is broken. It's broken because we've basically got three ways that business capital is owned. One is public companies. One is private equity, which is growing very quickly. And the third is closely held family businesses, partners, and that sort of thing. That latter category, that's still working pretty well. Those companies can think about the long term. They can root themselves in communities, but eventually they need to be sold to somebody. And often that somebody's private equity or sometimes a public company. Private equity firms, when they go buy a company, they're thinking, we're going to flip it in three to seven years for hopefully a higher price. And we're going to do what we need to do in the interim to jack up profits. And sometimes, too often, that involves changing the company's values or laying people off or otherwise cutting costs to improve profits. And so the private equity people, when they sell it, they get very, very, very rich. 
the people who work for them effectively pay for them getting really rich, often at the cost of their jobs or benefits. Or if you look at things like medical care and dental care, where private equity is buying up all these companies at the cost of the benefit of the customer, who's now subservient to a model focused on profit, not care. Public companies, to think of people owning them is really a misnomer. The vast majority of trades in public companies are done by algorithm. Literally, these are computers owning shares for fractions of a second. Public company CEOs have a tenure of less than five years. So the focus is very much on short-term profits to drive short-term stock prices, not on the long-term health of the company, the employees, the community. The difficulty with that is, first of all, there's no focus on the long-term in either of those models. Yep. And secondly, the people who own those entities, the private equity and the shareholders primarily, and the CEOs with enormous amounts of stock options are getting very, very rich and wealth is concentrating more and more, while 50% of the population can't put its hands on $1,000 in an emergency, 50% of the private sector workforce is in no retirement plan at all. So wealth insecurities become rampant in the United States, while a handful of people are getting tens of millions or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in return for their equity. Mm -hmm. Since the 1970s, the real median wage is basically unchanged. But people's needs in real terms have increased. But the return on equity has been over 8% per year. So people who are working for a living are running faster and faster to try to stay in place. And people who own stuff are getting richer and richer. So not only are people wealth insecure, but they're angry. They're saying the system isn't fair. It doesn't work for me. It works for you. And I think that's behind a lot of the loss of social trust and the tremendous disruption we're having in society right now. I agree with you completely. And so... Maybe, especially for people who are listeners who you know aren't familiar with employee ownership, how does employee ownership really tackle that issue? So what employee ownership says is, if you took some of this equity that's so concentrated in the hands of so few, and you divided it more amongst your employees, you could have a lot of people with enough wealth to live much more secure lives. And the companies, by the way, will do better too because everybody has a stake in the future. I loved it. Gary, you were on a panel with Greg Graves at our conference. It was great, but you were terrific. Thank you. And Greg, who is the CEO, former CEO of a big employee engineering company called Burns and McDonald, said one of my favorite quotes ever about why employee ownership matters. He said, you know, at Burns and McDonald, we don't create any billionaires, but for every billionaire we don't create, we create a thousand 
millionaires. And that's perfect. Mm -hmm. That's what employee ownership does. It's not making anybody poor or poorer, really. Mm -hmm. It's taking the opportunity for future wealth that employees help create. And instead of concentrating it in a few hands, it's sharing it widely with all the people who create it. And I think that's the genius of employee ownership is it's not confiscatory. It's not saying, well, we're going to make you give up some of the wealth that you have to give to the people who don't have it. It's saying that when we create wealth in the future, we're going to create a system so that more people can partake in it. So then why are there only 6,000 ESOPs out there? And why do people not see this as a viable model? Is it fear? Is it lack of education? So first, it's worth stepping back and talking about what is an ESOP? Why would you, why would anybody do this? Sure. And they are employee benefit plans created by Congress under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And basically what the ESOP says is a company is going to use its future profits to purchase its own shares for the benefit of the people who work there. And the company is going to get a tax deduction for doing that. So it's a stock redemption. There's no other way that you can redeem stock with pre-tax dollars. That's a big deal. So maybe the owner wants to have a company, a closely held company, most typically, for instance, says, you know, I'm thinking it's getting to be time for me to think about selling some of my ownership. I could sell to another company. I'm not sure that would be good for my employees or my community. Maybe I'd like to stay around a while too. So I don't know if I really want to do that. But if this ESOP thing works, we can use the future profits that will all help create on a tax deductible basis to buy my shares out. And by the way, Congress tells me that if I do this and we do it the right way, I can defer taxes on the gain that I make by reinvesting in stocks and bonds of other companies. And there's no other way to do that. And just to put some sweetener on top of this, if we become 100% employee-owned, the company doesn't have to pay any taxes. That's not some loophole. That's the law. So all these great tax benefits for me to sell to an ESOP rather than sell to someone else. Given all of that, why don't more people do it, as you say? And there's a lot of reasons. They mostly come down to a couple key things. One is companies have to have enough money to pay for the costs of setting the plan up. Number two, and more importantly, they have to have enough profits to be able to buy their own shares back, even though that's pre-tax dollars, and still have enough money to run the company. So some companies just aren't in that situation. Secondly, they have to go to their advisor and say, yeah, I heard about this ESOP thing. What do you think? Unfortunately, what a lot of advisors are going to say is, eh, you don't want to do that. You know, I understand it's complicated. I've heard that sometimes there are problems and I heard that it doesn't work in your industry or whatever. What they're really saying is, I don't understand how it works. If I don't understand how it works, it's probably not a good idea. That's a natural human tendency. Or worse, they could actually make more money selling you to someone else. Because if they sell you to someone else, they can charge a success fee for the transaction. You don't necessarily have to pay that in an ESOP. So their interest may be financially to have you not do an ESOP, either because they could get that success fee or they're afraid if you do the ESOP, you'll use different advisors who are more knowledgeable about it. Or maybe more innocent. They just don't know what it is and don't want to find out. 
So that's a tremendous barrier. It's by far the overwhelming barrier to why there aren't more ESOPs. And it's difficult to get the financial community educated about this because there is a lot to learn on how to do this. There's a lot of moving parts. It's not that you can't do it, but it takes a little time. Yeah, and it's expensive. <laughs> and I think that it's could scare yeah. a lot of people away. Uh, but selling your company to anybody is expensive. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think maybe that's a kind of even a scare tactic, right? Even though it is complex. And since everything has to be these arm's length transactions, maybe more people involved than what I would say, a more traditional transaction. But you're right. right. It's expensive to sell your company no matter what. Yeah. So what about the legacy piece of this? What are you hearing from leaders, from owners, founders who say, okay, yeah, I need to be able to exit my company, but I have this legacy that I want to leave behind. Do you feel like that's a big part of what drives people to do employee ownership or in particular ESOPs? There are great financial benefits to sellers to do ESOPs. And I was convinced some years ago by one of our members that we should stop trying to sell ESOPs on that basis. He said, you know, for me and for most of the people I've talked to, there was all nice. I liked that, but that was not why I did it. I did it because this is my company. I've put my life into this company. These people have helped me build it. And I want to leave that legacy to them. And very often, I don't really want to leave right now. I would like to stay in some capacity in the company, maybe be on the board. Maybe I'm an engineer and I don't want to run the company anymore, but I love being an engineer. I could do that. But whether they want to stay or not, this sense of when I sell the company and I look back 10 years from now, how am I going to feel about what I did? And I'm going to feel really good if I did this. I share that same feeling. I was the CEO hired to take over and to lead this transition. It's almost been 17 years now. But I'm such a believer in it, and I feel 100% that Stonehenge is my company. You know, it's our company. And now when I look at how I want to carry on that legacy, I share Greg's philosophy that we should be creating thousands of millionaires, and that's the legacy that I want to leave behind. And I'm disruptive CEO, and I want to grow, and I want to do all of these things, and I want to solve all these hard problems. But at the end of the day, I want people to say, I had such a much better life. I had so many more opportunities. I became a better human being. I could live my dreams because I worked for Stone Age. And that is, in my opinion, what all leaders should look at. Like, how am I helping my employees lead better lives to contribute more to their communities, to their families, to society? Um, but that just seems so counterintuitive when people say that they're like, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Now, what are your results? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I was at a conference years ago and there was a keynote speaker. He said something that really affected me. He said, you want to live your life thinking, what do you want to be remembered for? Mm -hmm. And he said, there are people who want to be remembered for how rich they were, how many cars they had and how big their house was. But he said, I don't think many of you are in that category, is my guess. That most people, when you ask that question, they say, well, I want to be remembered for what I did for my family, my community, for other people. Yep. And that really struck me that if you live your life in that lens, then the sorts of things that you're doing and Greg's doing and all these owners of ESOP companies who sell to companies that become so successful as employer-owned businesses, 
Wow. Looking back on your life when you've done that, you feel pretty good. Yeah, we've got to bring the humanness back into business. Since this might be a controversial question, but do you think capitalism is fundamentally broken? Do you think that we can bring some of that impact that, you know, what do I want to be remembered for to drive better business decisions, more long-term thinking? Or do you feel like it's too far gone, especially looking at corporate America, publicly traded companies, private equity companies, is there going to be some sort of realization that maybe this isn't the best way? <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's any other way that is yeah. better. better. No. The other systems of economic organization haven't worked very well either. So I think capitalism is the best shot we've got, but I do think it's pretty broken for reasons I talked about before. Mm -hmm. But what's broken about it is that we need more capitalists. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't need capitalism. Capitalism provides lots of solutions to lots of problems for lots Absolutely. of people. It's grown the economy and provided benefits to people all over the world. It's just that it doesn't distribute those benefits very well. Winston Churchill said it, I'm paraphrasing, that the great problem with socialism is that everybody shares equally in its misery. And the great problem with capitalism is not everyone shares in its benefits. And what the proponents of employee ownership have long said is there's nothing wrong with capitalism that can't be fixed with more capitalists. And that's what employee ownership tries to do. I agree. I say the same thing. Like, I believe in capitalism. I've benefited from capitalism. We live a great life because of capitalism. And I just want to change the narrative of where the wealth creation happens. And that wealth creation happens to the people who are building the company, which are your employees. And no company can exist without employees. And no great company can exist without great employees. And boy, like you look 10 years down the road, we think we have labor issues now. <laughs> It's not getting better anytime soon. It's getting worse, yeah. It's going to get worse. And you have to be able to create a culture and a compensation system that I think that ownership has to be a big piece of to do well, to start to shift that narrative of capitalism can work and it can benefit everyone rather than the top few. And so it's just, where does the wealth creation happen? And I think it's a really important conversation. And I think it's really short-sighted for the ultra wealthy to not recognize that, you know, if we have more, like you've said, capitalists, right, more people who are getting to benefit from all of the wealth creation that's happening around the world, it creates a strong middle class. It creates more opportunities for everyone. But I don't know how other people view it. That's how I view it anyway. Yeah, I, I read a story that Sardi Nardella, the CEO of Microsoft could get a billion dollars, a billion dollars in equity compensation. And, you know, all these CEOs who are getting tens of millions of dollars per year in this, why isn't that embarrassing? What do you do with all that money? I took economics in college, as many of us probably did, and learned about the marginal value of things, the marginal utility curve, that the first piece of pizza is really good, the 14th, not so much. And the money is like any other commodity. It has a marginal value. And the marginal utility of all this additional money going to people who are already really rich is really, really small. Yeah. It's just that those people earn it. Like, I feel like my employee owners, they earn it. Right. They work so hard every single day. And to me, it's not just saying, oh, I'm going to share this piece of it with you. It's I'm going to, you know, honor 
the work that you've done and give you the piece that you've earned. But I just don't hear people saying that too much. It's like, okay, I pay you a salary, do your job. And that's not very compelling and very motivating for people, especially when there's such a war for talent out there right now. Right. You often hear public companies saying that you need to work hard and make the company profitable. And it's essentially saying win one for the shareholders. Yeah. Because they're the ones who are going to benefit from this. And as you say, that's not a very motivating message. So let's go back to how this works. So how does a person know if employee ownership is right for them and what type of employee ownership is right for them? Like, where do you get started? Well, you can get started by going to our website, (laughs) nco.org, which has lots of starting point information about how these different approaches work. I think it depends on where you are as a company, how big you are, what your goals are. So let's say that you're a a fairly young startup company. You don't have anybody who's looking to sell at this point. But as you said, you do have an issue about, gee, we want to attract and retain the best folks. And one common way to do that is to give them some form of equity. That could be stock options, restricted stock. It could be phantom shares or stock appreciation rights. Lots of ways to do it. What they all have in common is we're giving you as an employee the right to some of the economic value of the company long term. And that right will be cashed out in the next few years, maybe if we're sold or some other event happens. So we're giving you a stake in the future. There's not a lot of tax benefits to anybody doing that. It's not more costly than other forms of compensation, but it's generally taxed in much the same way. And there are no rules for this in terms of how you decide who gets what, how often, how much, and so on. So you can decide what's appropriate for you. If, on the other hand, you're a closely held company where you have an owner or multiple owners who's thinking, it's time to move on, sell some or all of what I own, then The next question is, you've got a few options. One is a worker cooperative, and these can work for very small companies. Typically, they don't have a lot of financial advantages. They're best for companies without a lot of capital costs so that the transition to employee ownership doesn't involve a tremendous amount of money. Employees are going to put up some of their own money to help fund the co-op, and the rest is going to have to be some kind of debt a seller note or a bank loan to help them become owners. In a worker co-op, every worker has the same share of the company and they each have one vote. So this also tends to fit best for companies with a philosophical bent towards that. Another approach is an employee ownership trust. And this is just setting up a conventional trust fund and the shares are sold to the trust. Typically the seller will take a note, get paid from the company's future profits over time. And all the shares go into the trust and they're held there permanently for the employees who work there, who don't actually get an equity stake, but they get a share of the profits each year. And the idea is that the company stays owned by that trust for a very long time. And these can be very inexpensive to set up, which is part of their appeal. And then finally, there's the ESOP. And the ESOP is the most complicated, most expensive, and most tax-favored of these approaches. So a typical scenario is you've got a company and it probably needs 15 to 20 employees, maybe 20 to 30, depending on who you talk to. And it needs profits probably of at least seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe more, on a fairly consistent basis in order to cover the costs and pay for the acquisition over time. 
And what happens now is the company sets up a trust called Employee Stock Ownership Trust, and it can fund it in three ways. One is you can just contribute shares to the trust. So you dilute your ownership and the employees become owners and you get a tax deduction. The second is the company starts putting cash into the plan each year, purely discretionary. This year we'll put in a lot. We made a lot of money next year. Not so much. Have a tougher year. Each year, the trust takes those dollars and it buys shares from the seller. Most of the time, the seller says, I'd like to sell more quickly. And so now what you can do is the company borrows money to buy however many shares the seller wants to sell. It can borrow them from a bank. It can use a seller note or very often a combination. It buys the shares, then it reloans the money to the employees to purchase the shares that the company just bought. And all those shares are put in this trust. And as the loans paid for over a number of years, the employees get allocations of those shares based on their relative pay. And basically everybody who works full-time has to be included in the plan. The company gets a tax deduction for doing this. So if you have a $5 million company and you redeem your shares, you might need $7.5 million in pre-tax profits to have five left over. But with an ESOP, you only need five because it's deductible. If the company is a C corporation or converts to one, can take the money, reinvest in stocks and bonds of U.S. companies, not pay any tax until the seller sells those. And if they go into the seller's estate, there's no tax. If the company is an S corporation, you can't do that unless you convert to a C. But there's this other nifty benefit, which is whatever the ESOP owns isn't taxable. So maybe you sell 40% of the company to the ESOP and you make a distribution to the owner to pay taxes on their 60%. The ESOP gets a pro rata distribution, but doesn't have to pay taxes on it. Doesn't have to send that money to the government, gets to keep the money, and it can buy more of your shares in effect for free because that's money that would have been paid in taxes. If the ESOP ends up owning 100% of the shares, then the company doesn't pay any taxes at all. And as I said, that's not a loophole, that's the law. Yeah, so there are all absolutely... these tax benefits. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And thank you for being able to so articulately explain kind of those different models, because people ask me that all the time. And yeah, you clearly are the expert, the guru at this. <laughs> Years I guess that's practice. what you get. Yeah, I guess that's what you get when you've been doing this for 45 years, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for explaining the intricacies of how it works, even though, of course, there's a lot more that goes into each of those models of employee ownership. Let's pivot a little bit to leadership. And maybe you can give some examples of the impact on leadership and how leaders of great ESOP companies work. Do you sure. have a story or two that you can share? I do. The biggest lesson I've ever learned about leadership in employee ownership companies comes from Jack Stack, who's the CEO of SRC Holdings, used to be Springfield Remanufacturing. And Jack's been the CEO since they've been a company when they bought themselves out from International Harvester in 1983. And I met Jack, he looked about 12, but at the time, I think he was probably uh, late 20s, early 30s. And SRC was in trouble. At 119 employees, were not doing well at all. They went to 50 banks to try to get enough money to buy themselves out. And finally, the 50th banker said yes with a debt to equity ratio of 89 to 1. 
the banker was fired, <laughs> but they kept their loan. And Jack said, if we're going to survive, every one of our 119 employees needs to understand how we make money. So I'm going to teach all these employees who are remanufacturing heavy-duty truck engines how we work as a business to read income statements, balance sheets, and develop critical numbers for all the operations that they do that they're going to track and follow and manage. So he did that, and he called it the great game of business because he said, business is a game. And if you go to a casino and you pull your arm up and down, or now you push a button all day long and you lose money, you don't lose too much. You probably had a really good day. If somebody said, go to the casino, do exactly the same thing for eight hours, I'll give you 50 bucks, win or lose, there'd be no casinos. Because yep. it would be boring. When it's a game, it's fun. Business is a game, Jack said. So... Jack did that, and he had another precept, which is humility, that just because I'm the CEO doesn't mean I know everything. In fact, doesn't even mean I know that much, and that other people who work for us know their jobs a lot better than I do, and I should listen to them, and I should listen to them with humility. I'm approachable, and I'll really hear the good ideas. So they set up this system of high involvement management where employees on a weekly basis have these huddles to go over their numbers and make decisions as a group about how to move things forward. Jack tells this story about fairly early on, company was doing pretty well and they were rebuilding these engines and the janitor says, Jack, wait a minute, I need to talk to you. And he says, you know, we're going to have a recession. Jack says, yeah, I know it looks that way. And he said, you know what happens in recessions? Construction companies are the song, they're not going to be buying a lot of trucks. But what does happen in a recession is people fix their engines to keep their cars going and their trucks going. We need to have a business that deals with those people. And how many CEOs would listen to their janitor about a strategic issue? Well, Jack did. He said, that's a really good idea. And he went immediately back, called a management meeting and said, I think we should do this. And they did. Recession happened and they did fine. A few weeks ago, SRC celebrated its 40th year as an ESOP. Its stock price, they now have 2,000 employees, has grown 1 million, 1 million percent. So you can understand why that's one of my favorite stories. The <laughs> other great story, and I'll be briefer on this one, is W.L. Gore Associates. They make Cortex, which everybody knows them for, but their by far biggest business is in medical applications of that technology. They have about 12,000 employees. They're employee-owned. And when they talk about leadership, they say, we have no leadership structure. We have no hierarchy. We have no job titles. If you have an idea for a project, you can do it and you can draw down a budget if you can convince enough of your colleagues to join your team. If they do, you can form the team, draw down the budget, and then the team selects its own leaders. And 50% of CORE has been a leader at one time or another. But CORE's philosophy about authority is that authority is consistent with expertise, not position. And they also have been just this wildly successful company. Both of those models are saying, in different ways that you create a management system based on what people know, not what position they have. And that means that authority shifts from issue to issue. I love those examples. I think they're spot on and they are just such unique ways of looking at business, right? So untraditional 
it's such an untraditional way of thinking about, you know, keep my employees in the dark. They don't need to understand it. They're not capable of understanding it. Right. You have to have a hierarchy structure of leadership to get anything done. And they've really proved that those assumptions, those things that are written in stone in management aren't necessarily true. There's a big difference between vertical control, which is I can tell you what to do and I'm going to get involved in making decisions about a lot of stuff and horizontal control. Horizontal control says, I'm not going to try to get involved in all these other things. I'm going to assume that people can make better decisions than I can on whatever it is. But because I don't have to get involved, I can get involved in all sorts of other things that are of interest to me and that I have the special skills to do better maybe than anybody else in the company. That's a different kind of control that's both a lot more interesting to the person doing it and, and it's a lot more impactful. I so agree. You're not, you're not giving up authority by doing what Jack's doing. You're shifting it to different things. Yep. I think that's such a powerful way to put it. Thank you for sharing those examples. Okay. So I have two last questions to wrap things up here. So I've totally switched directions. I want to ask you my signature question. The name of this podcast is called Reflect Forward. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? Yeah, in some ways, it, it's the inverse of what I was saying before about when you look back on your life, what do you want to be remembered for? And this is, I think, going forward in life, what do I want to do that creates that legacy? What's going to be a meaningful way to spend the rest of my life? I could give you a hug right now. I have been telling so many people in my life who are sharing their goals and their dreams with me, go for it. Go for it. Like, why? There's no better time than now to create that life that you want and go for it. So, right, right. Perfect. So, what's next for you? What are you going for next? 45 years of doing this. <laughs> what is that? 45 like? more. <laughs> there you go. I love it. I love it. <laughs> They're a bit ambitious. Well, I think it's a reasonable goal just to keep doing this as long as I can. I, I stopped being the director 12 years ago now, and that was an intentional plan that after 30 years, somebody else should do it. I thought that would be good for the organization. I was right. Our new director's done a great job and done things I wouldn't have done, and the organization has benefited from that. I decided I would become, I don't get a salary from the center. So I do this because I get up every morning thinking how lucky I am to be able to do this, to do it with people like you and to meet people like you and hear Stone Age's story just really motivates me to keep doing this because it's a lot of fun and seeing people's lives change for the better is the best thing you can have in life. And there's just no better feeling than that. Well, you have made such a huge impact on the employee ownership world and educating all of us. You know, I remember the very first time I came to learn really about ESOPs. It was to an NCEO conference for established ESOPs, even though we were just getting started. And I learned so much. It was the first time I had a chance to meet you. And looking back now, we're nine years, almost a decade into this. And I just really appreciate your passion and all that you've done to make employee ownership a viable model that people can understand. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's people like you who make this all worthwhile and make this a successful idea. Yeah. Well, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Okay. So tell us here before we go, where can people learn more about the NCEO? What do you have going on? Is there any event that you want to promote or your book? Where can people right. find your book? So our website's nceo.org, National Center for Employee Ownership. 
You can find my email there as well as other staff people. We are having what we call our Fall Forum, which is our smaller conference that'll be in Houston, September 26th to the 28th. And then in October, we have a seminar for people who are thinking about an ESOP in New Orleans. So go to our website. You can learn about those events. In terms of publications, we have lots of books on how to do employee ownership. Go to the publications area of our website. If you become a member of the NCEO, it's not a lot of money. You can contact us anytime with questions, lots of great resources. And if you're interested in the broader sort of philosophical issues here, again, the book I wrote with John Case is titled Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? And you can find that on our site or any online bookseller and in some bookstores. Wonderful. And I'll include all that in the show notes. Thank well, you. I so, so, so appreciate you coming on the show today, Corey. Thank you for Thank you, all you've Karen. done, for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Hang tight. I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was a technical dive into what employee ownership is, but it's so important to understand the foundation and that it's not impossible, that your company can do this too, that you can lead an employee-owned company, that you can be a great employee in an employee-owned company. Hopefully it was interesting and you learned a lot from that. All right. I will leave you for your day. I look forward to hosting you next week with an advice from a CEO episode. And if you like this podcast, please like it, share it, subscribe to it, rate it. It always helps with the algorithms. And don't forget to go order a pre-copy of my book. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Porchlight Books at a discount. If you just Google Carrie Siggins, The Ownership Mindset, you'll be able to find it. And I will include that in the show notes as well. So thank you so much. I so appreciate your support. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.